This is the LarryInFishers.com podcast. My name is Larry Lannon. I'm honored once again to have uh, as my guest today on my podcast series, the mayor of the city of Fishers, uh, Scott Fadness. And and as we open this, uh, Mayor, I want to thank you. I want to thank several members of your staff and other people in Fishers who were encouraging to me uh, when I went through... um, a uh, pretty serious uh, problem with coronavirus. Still can't figure out how I got it, but I did and uh, was fortunate being in a high-risk category, still able to completely recover. So thank you for the shout-out you gave me and, and the members of your staff and others. It was very much appreciated by me, and it was a big help for me as I tried to do well, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're back on your feet, Larry, and, and doing the services that you do for our community. So thank you. Well, and I'm glad David George, a member of your city council, also is, uh, appears to have completely recovered. Yep. I was uh, yes. watching the, his his uh, how he was doing as well. So um, I, I thank uh, I thank my lucky stars for every day from now on. Yeah. Uh, let me start off with coronavirus. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And uh, you did uh, create quite a commotion uh, yesterday, November 17th. There was an early morning meeting of the Hamilton Southeastern School Board. I watched it uh, virtually from my home on a live stream. And the board voted to go all virtual beginning uh, tomorrow, the next day after we record this, which is November 19th or at least December 4th. Now, shortly after that vote, you did issue a statement. It's brief, so for those who haven't read it, I'm just going to read it quickly and then talk about it on the other side. So the, your statement was, quote, neither my administration nor our health department were aware of HSE's decision to move pre-K through sixth grade education to 100% virtual learning. We have worked tirelessly to keep our schools open and have publicly stated that we believe schools should be open. In fact, today, which would have been November 17th, we intended to announce the opening of an additional COVID-19 testing site dedicated to any student or staff member at HSC schools that had been exposed I'm extremely concerned about the burden that this will cause parents with a mere 48-hour notice for the closure. My commitment to our residents is that I will do all that we can to see our schools open again. I'll end the quote there. I think that's a pretty clear statement. By the way, you did announce later in that day that you were opening that second test site. Uh, I guess the first question I would ask you, you're pretty clear in your statement there, what motivated you to make that statement? Well, we started uh, receiving calls right away. I think uh, up to that point, we've had a number of people um, ask us whether the health department was closing down the schools and things of that nature. And, and uh, we, we wanted to let people know that in that honest God, um, we want to do all that we can to provide any resources that we can to help the schools get back into classroom. I think our our kids back in the classroom, um, people, I think, read a lot more into that statement than probably was there. Um, But I stand by it in that we weren't aware that they were going to make that decision. Um, Two, we do think that kids have been doing well in the schools in large part to the hard work of our school system and their mitigation measures and all those types of things. Three, it is a burden on our residents to, to not have their kids in school that quickly. And finally, whenever and however the school board decides to, to bring the kids back, we as a city will do all that we can to provide whatever resources we can for them to be able to do that. I think obviously right now things are emotionally charged and people took that and ran with it. 
And um, I regret that aspect of it. But um, in terms of my commitment to doing all that we can to support the schools and provide the resources, uh, we're going to do it. Just like, you know, we, we've been working for a couple of weeks on this new testing site uh, for the schools and things like that, creative things that we can do to partner. I mean, we're going to do it because I think in general, all of us hope and wish for a day where our kids can be back in the classroom. And uh, that's what we're striving to get done. Now, I, I, I did uh, try to find that statement later in the day yesterday, and, and it appears that, that uh, and I want to ask if this is the case, that you may have deleted the message later in the day. Did you delete the message on some of your social media? Uh, I think it tweets? was uh, taken down from my political website. Okay. But as for the city's messages, it was there. And honestly, what we realized is that people were taking it in a very negative direction and there really was no reason to keep it up and, and cause any additional consternation. Um, if it didn't strike the chord that people wanted to, I apologize for that. I still stand by the idea that I would love to see our kids in school and that the city will do all that we can and provide any resources that we can to get them back in school. Based on what I heard, it's mostly listening. They try to provide a, a video stream. It's mostly listening to the to that meeting yesterday by the school board. It appeared that they had an immediate crunch just not being able to staff with adults all those school, classrooms. Um, they don't have enough uh, uh, substitute teachers. Every administrator was watching a class. Uh, the, the teachers were giving up their prep periods to watch classes they were combining classes uh do you think as a city uh is there something you can do to try to help because this is a serious crunch with the um with the substitute teaching staff as i understand it sure. and there's some subs who are older who are hesitant to be a sub at this point is there something you as a city can do to help that i don't know the answer to that but you know look for the last two decades of my career we've come to the aid of the schools every single time there's ever been a concern, a question, a need. Um, obviously, if there's something that we can do uh, creatively to try to help with that issue, we'd be happy to do that. Um, I think if, if the schools need that kind of support, it would be unconventional, but we're used to doing unconventional things. So um, yeah, we would obviously rally the community in any way that we can, because again, just like the statement says, we want our kids in our schools. So whatever impediments there are for that, if we can help in any way, we're going to do it. I know you have three young boys at home and I have, uh, I'm just, you know, I have two daughters, twin daughters that are adults now. And I wonder just how tough it would be if I were out working, my wife was out working and we tried to deal with this virtual learning. I know it's got to be tough for families, but you know, when you're in a pandemic, there aren't a lot of good choices, are there, Mayor? Well, there are no good choices this year, Larry. I mean, um, I, I have to say this has been the most unique experience this year trying to. Okay, I think we're starting to break up just a little bit. Could on you repeat? both sides of this issue. Um, our, our feed's breaking well, up a little bit. Could you repeat what you just said, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just an unbelievably polarized time. I mean, I've never had to lead through an issue where there are people on both sides that are so animated and believe so uh, much in their particular uh, version of what reality is. And, and so, you know, if I could take you back here and maybe just uh, get 
get on a soapbox for a second, Larry. You know, March 6th was the first time that COVID came to Indiana and it came to Fishers first. A lot of people don't know that. The first case was in Fishers. The gentleman ended up quarantining at a hotel in the city of Fishers. From that morning forward, nothing has been the same here at City Hall or in the city of Fishers. So you fast forward to later in March, I decentralized all of our staff. Uh, I made the decision to create a health department. And the reason I did that was because I, I understood believed in the severity of this issue and I also on COVID. And so one of the things that we did uh, was we ramped up testing and contact tracing because what we know fundamentally is that those two things have the best chance at trying to curb the spread of this disease, identifying people who are sick and then testing them. And, um, and we got a lot of, a lot of people were upset about that. Didn't understand why we would do that. It's an assault on my freedoms. It's uh, excess government, what have you. So we, we implement, and um, throughout the summer, things start to go down. We don't, we don't see nearly the cases that we had been seeing for some time. But we continue to do contact tracing. We continue to do testing, which, by the way, we're the only city in the state of Indiana that is providing free testing for our residents. And we're the only city, to my knowledge, in the state of Indiana that is doing contact tracing uh, on every case that we get. We get into the August time frame. And, or July timeframe, and the schools have no framework to know what to do next. The state hadn't provided any information on what kind of guidelines to use or anything like that. Monica and Dr. Lane do their research and they come up with a framework that says, here's our best understanding at the time with the facts that we have that would tell you, here's, here's how you move forward. And we caught an unbelievable amount of grief on both sides about that. August hits and all of a sudden we see a huge spike in the number of COVID cases that we're seeing. And that actually was really unique because it was a, it was a very small amount of uh, people. It was, it was a very narrow band and it was all college kids. And they were getting tested to go back to college and they had been socializing all summer. And a lot of them had COVID, a lot of them were asymptomatic. Which that spike led to a concern which then slowed down the schools opening back up. Which led to a, a real consternation in the community and people really, really upset about why the schools weren't open? Was it the health department's fault? Was it the school's fault? And, and there was a lot of, a lot of uh, very strong opinions on both sides of that. So we all worked very diligently to get things mitigated, to get things back on track. And throughout the fall, we start to see this slow but ever-growing increase in the number of people getting sick. And it got to a point recently, two or three weeks ago, where Monica and Dr. Lane came to me and said, look, we are, we're on an exponential growth curve here for COVID-19. But unlike in the spring, because we have done testing, we have done contact tracing, we understand, we have insights into where people are getting sick. And it was in a lot of these informal social gatherings. Again, nobody in the state of Indiana had been putting out any kind of guidelines, any kind of direction around these issues. And once again, we decided we were gonna we were gonna do what needed to be done. And we came out last Tuesday and said, we need to put these common sense approaches to try to drive some of the issues that are um, spreading the disease. And, and so our health board proposes these series of ideas. 
and I just want to, I want to share with you, Larry, where, where our community is at on a couple of these things. You're anticipating my next question, which is, uh, so I just, let me just phrase it this way to kind of uh, give people a context. Uh, because a Fisher's Public Health Order is going to af- into effect today, the day we speak, on the 18th right. of November, uh, I'd like you, and I think that's where you're going anyway, just to explain, just to give people context, how your local public health order is going further than what Governor Eric Holcomb sure. has done with his statewide executive order. So we came out on Tuesday with our health order, our recommendations for a health order. Wednesday, the governor came out with, in many ways, a lot of the same concepts and we were we felt very good about the fact that dr box and the governor and their whole team said yeah these are a lot of the things that need to be done so that was very affirming friday we evaluated what the governor's order said and we said are there things that we need to go above and beyond here in our city because we're taking this so seriously and we have the numbers we have the insights we have the data ultimately we decided to do a handful of those things like limiting spectators for extracurricular activities down to just the parental uh, folks or the guardians or um, limiting no bar service, things of that nature. But what I wanted to share with you, Larry, is um, just so, so some of the feedback that we get from our community in regards to the, these uh, concepts. And, I, and I'm not saying this to embarrass anyone who posted these, but um, one says, you have made our community less safe. You have the power and responsibility to mitigate this. I hope you're preparing to inevitable, um, I hope you're preparing for the inevitable illnesses, hospital usage and deaths coming. Please be proactive now. Take real action now. That was one comment I got. Um, The next one I got was, I stand strong for health freedom and being able to make the decisions that are best for myself and my family based on personal risk relative to the information provided. Placing continued restrictions on healthy people in your community, including dictating that they can or can't do in their own homes is complete government overreach. This must stop in our kids' education and associated activities must remain our top priority. Sounds, that, sounds a lot like the messages I get every day. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what we see here in our community is just this unbelievably polarized conversation around where do you put your values? Where do you put the value of human life? Where do you put the value of civil liberties? And it's happening in a very short period of time to have this discussion. All we know to do, and Monica and Dr. Lane have been trust policies possible, balancing uh, science with what people's public policy and, and, and civil liberties, uh, what what people are willing to tolerate. And uh, and so it's you know, it's been a long journey. And I, I don't know that anybody has gotten it exactly right. But I will tell you, I'm very proud of our reaction to this pandemic. I mean, we have passed 20,000 people who have now received a free test and we're testing 3000 a week at this point. And 35%, Larry, 35% of the people that get tested in our test site or have been, excuse me, 35% of the people that have been positive in Fishers have been identified through our test site. I mean, those, those are people who can now protect their loved ones or people who are vulnerable or go seek the treatment that they need that otherwise may not have received it. So, you know, this is a tough, tough thing. And we're going to continue to put our head down and do everything that we can for our community moving forward. And uh, yes, I, 
I think that trade-off was exemplified in the original Fisher's Health Department recommendation that all extracurricular activities uh, at the HSC schools be be canceled, uh, at least for a period of time. And I'm sure you've got lots of feedback on that, as the health department did. And the final decision was really uh, the governor's, what they call the red uh, we were not, we're not, our county's not in, in a red category. It's, it's, uh, you can have the athletic events and the extracurricular activities with, with a very large restriction, just a very few people who will be allowed in the stands for an athletic uh, um, event and so forth. So would that be an example of the trade-off that, that you as a city had to make? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think you have to go back to the data and identify, well, how much spread is really occurring from that activity? Um, do we believe that there are mitigation measures that can be taken? Um, what level of restrictions should we put above and beyond? I mean, we're we're the only community besides Marion County that's actually attempting to put additional restrictions on these activities. And so, um, yeah, those are those are difficult, difficult conversations. And, you know, I know that when we make those decisions, when we leave there, you're going to have a group of people that say you didn't do enough and you're going to have other people saying you did too much. And all that we can really do is use our compass to say, what can we go to bed at night going, okay, we, we did uh, the best that we um, could. And, and, and that's really, but what I will tell you, Larry, I think this is so important for our residents to know in the spring, cause I have, I have lived, <laughs> I've lived every day this COVID conversation for a year uh, here at City Hall. And in the spring when COVID came to Indiana, came to Fishers, that experience is distinctly different than what we are going through right now. And I, and I want to emphasize this. In the spring, COVID was something that hit our long-term care facilities very hard. Um, it was an abstract concept. It was around, but nobody, very seldom would you know someone who had actually been exposed to it or had gotten sick or, God forbid, died from it. This fall, it's very different. Uh, COVID has come to Indiana, and it will not treat Indiana well. Um, it is here. It is everywhere. Um, and it's going, and we, and we have a convergence of issues here. You have... The numbers climbing dramatically right now. You have college kids coming home from college and you have Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. And all, all of the, those things together along with people being indoors and frankly, people less are going to culminate in what I believe is going to be a very difficult uh, upcoming in several weeks. Let me uh, well, uh, ask this, uh, if I may, because it's, it ties in with what you're saying. The city council had an agenda item on its meeting last Monday, which uh, would have uh, provided a voter in a proposed ordinance of fines up to $500 for violations of public health orders. Uh, the item was removed at the last minute. Uh, could you explain why that item was removed from the city council agenda? Yeah, so this goes again to just kind of the crazy <clears throat> misinformation world or um, kind of hysteria that we're in now. So this was actually a cleanup item where we had passed our uh, health ordinance some time ago, but we had not put a penalty structure or a fine structure in there. And as we stepped up enforcement, we felt it was appropriate to have some sort of fine structure. Otherwise, your only, your only measures you can really use are education, education, 
warning, then we have to close down whatever's happening. You have to get a health order to close down. So we were bringing that forward. Well, um, unfortunately, somehow that got construed into an effort that they believe we were going to try to close down all the churches. And so it got spread throughout the community that this was some sort of effort to go around closing down religious institutions. And honestly, at that point, we were we were of the opinion, hey, let's just make sure we can kill all this misinformation that's out there. And we'll come back and deal with this $500 one when we have an opportunity to really make people understand what this is about. But that, I mean, right now, Larry, everybody is so tired. They're so fatigued. They're emotionally drained that when you communicate anything at this point, um, people, they read into it and they get very upset and we're off to the races. And so, um, you know, there again, we just have to pick and choose timing wise when to bring these things forward in order to try to accomplish things. And you would have needed uh, a unanimous vote of nine votes of the city council to pass yeah. that. So uh, with all the with all that was going on, I'm sure you felt uh, pulling yeah, it was no, the, no the way correct thing gonna, to do. Yeah, yeah it was not going to pass, and it was going to cause further divide in our community over things that actually weren't even relevant to the thing that we were trying to bring forward. So um, now that's not going to slow down our inspection teams going out and doing the education and proactive work. We're going to be out there talking to the community and, and following up on complaints and things of that nature. But, you know, we're at a time now, Larry, that you just have to – you have to be prepared for people to be triggered so quickly uh, around any number of issues. And, and I understand and empathize with everyone on how difficult this year has been and how either politically, racially, public health wise, economically, everyone is stressed out to the max. And so, um, you know, all we can do is try to continue to plot accordingly and, and with empathy and compassion and frankly competency uh, to make sure that we can do the things that we need to for people. Well, we spent over 20 minutes talking about coronavirus and it needed that, but I want to move yeah. on to something else. Uh, I want to move on to the interrupting racism program just for full disclosure. Sure. I went through that program at your invitation because I had expressed that this was an important issue for me. Uh, the class has been offered uh, free of charge to any Fishers resident. Your goal was to enroll 500 people. How many uh, enrollees did you have in the end? I think we're close to 350 have gone through the program at this point, Larry. We're very excited about that. We've received feedback uh, from a lot of the folks that have gone through the program. And uh, honestly, it's very affirming. They, they started in one place with their understanding and their empathy around the issue and very few, if any, didn't move closer to a deeper understanding of this very difficult issue and empathy for, for people who have uh, been victims of it. And uh, so much so that we, I mean, we intend to do this again next year, and we hope to have some exciting announcements in regard to that in the, in the near future. Well, 350 is not bad. 500 was a lofty goal, so 350 is a large number. And you do plan on having another cycle again. That was my next we question. Do, we okay. do. And, and honestly, we're not done with the 500. It's just the scheduling got bumped back. Uh, we had to push a few of those into January because of COVID and the ability to get people scheduled in and out. We just had to bump it another month or two. So we'll be doing those classes into January and February. But I'm confident we'll hit that 500 mark. But my plea to any resident, if you're interested in this issue, uh, racism, um, by all means, uh, you can sign up, and our, our Parks Department has a sign-up on their website. 
and please, please uh, join. It, it, it's a it's a worthy one day or two day course for you to take. Yeah, having been through it, I'll say this. I thought I knew a lot about race relations. I learned something in this. I think everyone will. And it's not a judgmental type thing. It's it's a matter no. of learning, understanding uh, more of the history, the background, so you know not just where we are, but how we, we got there. So just I'll, I'll say that much for myself. Let's move on to something else. Uh, State Road 37 continues to be a yeah. big project. Uh, you briefed the city council on this uh, this past meeting, the most recent meeting you had with them, the 126th Street Interchange is, I believe, set to open this week, just a few days from now. Uh, but there's much work yet to be done on this project. Uh, there are budget challenges. You've been upfront about that. A lot of uh, publicity on that. $42 million at one point. You say you're going to be able to save some money, but it would still leave about $18 million for the city, $18 million uh, for the county. Um, you did reference in the discussion with the city council a 25-year bond that's about yes. to roll. We'll call it rolling off. It ends, and right. uh, and your strategy, as you explained it, is that you remain you're very confident you will not need any tax rate increases or changes to complete State Road 37 by simply picking up that debt right. and keeping the rates where they are. So just give me a few sure. thoughts on on State Road 37 and, and where it's at. Well, you summarize it very well, Larry. Um, you know, this study was done back in 2012, I believe it was. And we had cost estimates at that time. And we used those estimates to go secure $100 million from the state of Indiana. That number is actually, if you think about it, grown by the state. So they've given us $100 million, plus they've done all the inspection work, which is to the tune of um, probably $15 million worth of inspection work. So they're, they're a huge partner in this, and I'm grateful for the state. Um, the arrangement was that if there were any cost overruns, that the county and the city would split that 50-50. And as we got into it, drainage, right-of-way acquisition, and utility relocations became um, far more expensive than what originally was planned. And some of that had to do that uh, there was an assumption made that there were no utility easements in the state road 37 right-of-way. Came to, we found out that there were 100-year-old easements that were actually there, and we have to compensate for that. So that costs uh, some money. And then, um, honestly, we made a commitment to the business owners along that corridor and to the residents that we were going to keep this thing at grade. So you weren't going to have these big walls dividing our community. As we got into the engineering for the drainage, you know, there was an opportunity to save some money here and there, some fairly significant money by raising the road up significantly. But we as policymakers said, that's not what we said we would do for our community. We don't want those businesses staring at a 20 foot wall. We're gonna, we're gonna do the work and set this for the, you know, the next 50 years. It is gonna cost us somewhere between 18 and $21 million more. Um, we, we've gone to the finance committee twice with this and we have identified a strategy that will not increase tax, taxes for our residents. And, um, and so we had a council meeting to start the initial authority process for that uh, on Monday night, and we had a unanimous vote for that. We will open 126 and 37 on Thursday. Uh, and one of the, one of the unsung stories of, uh, of State Road 37 construction is that we actually got the first and one of the busiest interchanges done this year with minimal traffic disruption to our community. And, if you were to ask me, I, I, one of my one of the things that would have kept me up at night over the last few years is what's going to happen when we start ground breaking ground on 37. What does that mean for road construction traffic? 
And honestly, to have that ribbon cutting on Thursday is just incredible to me that we made it through the year and got that done. And, and then next year will be another big hurdle with 146th Street. That, that's a big, big project up in your neck of the woods, Larry. And uh, you'll, you'll uh, probably feel some of the constraints of that. But when it's done, it's going to be great. Yeah, I, I live about two blocks from State Road 37, and uh, so far I've, it, it, there's been minimal uh, uh, issues, but we know that will, will change in the future. Yeah. Let me move to uh, economic development. You and your staff there have uh, not allowed novel coronavirus to slow you down. Anybody driving down 116th Street can see that that whole area near City Hall is is changing and that construction continues you've had some recent successes announcement on the economic development area talk about that and any 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 thing in the works that at least to the extent that you can talk about it well what i am excited about and megan baumgartner uh, our economic development director did a great job through very difficult times two things i'd say about our economic development team you know last week larry when we were proposing these new recommendations and we saw these numbers going up we were on phone calls. We were on a call with 170 businesses and fishers. And then that afternoon, we spoke to 75 restaurants on the phone. I mean, one of the things the economic development team has done so well throughout this entire pandemic is we are uh, openly in the situation. Here's what we're going to need you to do. And I give a lot of credit to our team for making that proactive work on communications. Um, what people probably haven't really seen yet, but I think they're going to be excited about long term is during this pandemic, we were fortunate enough to have some real movement on the I-69 corridor. So that old Roche building that sat, sat empty for years is now being renovated. It's been purchased by a great uh, company, um, Round Room, it's called. It's more informally Moorhead Communications. They've taken that building. They're going to reimagine it and they're going to take down half of that building, which we're really, really excited about. That was a Carmel company that moved to Fishers. And then Knowledge Services bought the old Marsh headquarters, and I had the opportunity to tour that the other day. And it's going to be a rebirth of that building. I mean, a complete remodel. It's going to be an extraordinary building. So that building was falling in disrepair on the, on the corridor. Now you've got Knowledge Services uh, headquarters there. And then the big one that uh, Megan announced the other day is this pharmaceutical company coming to Fisher's. Uh, bringing well north of 150 jobs, making uh, you know $85,000 or more. Um, with room to expand and grow, and they're going to build a new facility here in Fishers, the $60 million startup uh, pharmaceutical company. So Fishers has been very blessed, to your point, Larry, that even during this pandemic, uh, we've been able to grow jobs and continue to have our economy thrive, and that's so important for the long-term viability of our city. If you don't mind, I've got a couple more questions. We're going to go over just a little bit here, but Sure. In a September opinion piece published in the Indianapolis Business Journal, you basically challenged the Indianapolis metro area to find the new key to uh, development. You gave it an example of of how powers that be in the Indianapolis area got together, I think you go back to the 80s on this, to make amateur sports a big development tool, and that was wildly successful to this day the ncaa looking at a bubble in indianapolis that's an amazing uh thing that may well happen but i guess the question i would ask you since you've published that op-ed in september uh, have you formulated any more specific ideas how you think as a region indianapolis should move ahead i do uh and i have and uh, i hope to announce hopefully in the in the coming weeks some some work on that front 
Um, I, I am a believer and always have been that there's opportunity and chaos and, and there's a need to step forward and, and act and have a bold vision. And I know that's hard right now because there's so many negative things happening that it's hard for people to see any kind of hope or any kind of forward direction, but we still need to do that. And, and we need to do that collectively together as a region. And, and I'm, and I'm encouraged. I'm cautiously optimistic that in the coming months um, we'll be able to do that. Uh, my last question to you deals with the 5g towers. Um, I don't get a chance to see all the board of works meetings, but that's uh, board of works and, and public safety is where these are considered. Um, you know, I've talked about this before, and I've listened to everything you've said, and, and City Attorney Chris Greisel's had to say about this, uh, uh, what the city can and cannot do under federal and state law with the placement and, and, and what's done with these 5G towers. Um, how do you think, I mean, I, I know that's a balance. You know, some of the neighborhoods are, are not going to be happy about these towers, but on the other hand, it's new technology, and you also want fishers to be a part of that. Where do you think you stand right now? Do you think uh, the city is where it needs to be in terms of interpreting the law, what the city can and cannot do, and how the neighborhoods are reacting to this? Well, this is a little bit like COVID, Larry, in that um, when I sit there at these Board of Works meetings, I have representatives from the telecommunications sector that, that are sitting there listening to every word that I say and waiting for me to make a decision or make a statement that would be in violation of federal law so that they can challenge what it is uh, that we're trying to do. And then on the other hand, I have residents who say, look, Scott, we don't, we don't want these. We have no interest in them. Don't put them in our neighborhood. We have a petition that says we don't want these. Under federal law, that I can't consider those things. And so what I do think we've gotten to a point on 5G that I, I hope is helpful to the residents is our board has come up with a fairly consistent policy that says, look, if there is an undue burden put on an individual resident uh, or a homeowner because of the placement of these towers, we're denying them or we're asking them to move. Uh, and so what you'll see, and it's very painstaking, is we'll have 30 of these on the, on the Board of Works agenda. And we have to go, we look at each one of them. And if they're trying to stick the tower in the picture window, in front of the picture window of a home, we're, t- we're saying to Verizon, look, th- this seems like an undue or adverse move it. And if you can't move it, we'll deny it. And, you know, we've done that on a handful of occasions now. And, and I assume we're going to continue that policy for the foreseeable future. But we put this ordinance in place for the sole purpose of giving residents a voice. And, um, and that's what we're trying to do uh, under the confines of or restraints of the federal legislation that's out there. And I understand when residents are upset or mad that we're not just voting them all down because that's what they would like, but um, they should talk to their congressman or the federal government in regard to that because my hands are tied in that regard. I believe Verizon's the company doing all the 5G installations. Have they challenged uh, any of your decisions legally up to now? Uh, not to, not at this point. They have not challenged anything legally, but I do believe um, Verizon and all the telecommunications companies are watching fishers very closely. Once again, we kind of led the way in creating a process, and I think they're very worried that whatever we do and whatever precedent we set may set the precedent for the rest of the state. And so they're very, very cautious and watching very, very closely to see 
if we're being heavy handed or, or violating any kind of federal law. So it's even been awkward a couple of times during those meetings when a resident will say something and I have to subtly correct them or say, you know, just so you understand, I'm not considering this based on the arguments that you just made. And they look at me very quizzically, but what they may not realize is I have the telecom industry sitting across the, the hall going, are you, are you going to base it on that? Cause if you do, that's illegal. You know, so it is a tightrope that we're walking. Uh, before we wrap it up, anything that you would like to add? You know, the only thing I would say, Larry, is I understand why our community is feeling so upset, so anxious, so scared, so stressed out. And just know that there is a team of people here at the city that are working uh, day and night to try to provide the services that you need with empathy and compassion and competency. And we'll continue to do so. We will continue to make hard decisions. We'll absorb the body blows of people who are upset with us uh, one way or another, but just know uh, that we are here for the community. City Hall is never gonna close. And um, and we're all gonna get through this. We're gonna, we're gonna be okay. Our community will do well and, uh, and hang in there. Mayor Scott Fadness, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. Enjoy talking to you. Thanks, Larry. Have a good day.